A little bit of Kerry Finn is a lot of Kerry Finn. So. We started a new series last week. Um, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. The shortest of the Gospels, the, the New Testament, begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are the eyewitness records of the Apostles. After Jesus returned to the Father, the Apostles began to teach people what Jesus had said, what he did, how he behaved. They spent three years with him, eating with him, traveling with him, watching him heal. And the four Gospels are their eyewitness accounts of the events that they saw in those three years. The Gospel of Mark is based on Peter's memory. And it is by far the simplest. In fact, virtually of all the writing in the Bible, the Gospel of Mark is the simplest. Because Peter was a simple man. He was a fisherman. He was illiterate. He never went to school. And so when he remembers, as a, a man of action, he just remembers what, pe what Jesus did. Jesus did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. There's no elaboration. There's no theorizing. There's no speculation as to who Jesus is or what he uh, is really about. It's really an eyewitness account, a very vivid and direct account of Jesus. And therefore, it's a great place to go to get the basics, to be confronted, as Peter was, by this extraordinary personality and to see how he behaved. We saw last week that um, Mark begins with the story of how John the Baptist came foretelling Jesus, came to Israel, which at that time had not heard from God for 400 years, and became, for the first time in 400 years, the voice of God to Israel, a prophet out in the wilderness, a prophet who was so compelling and charismatic that ordinary people, peasants, farmers, lay down their daily work and went to him out in the wilderness to listen to him and to be baptized by him in the river, river Jordan. John was telling them that someone is coming, the Messiah is coming, someone who is so much more significant than me that I'm not worthy to to tie his sandals, as we saw last week. And the people heard it, and they were smitten, and despite in Jerusalem the presence of all their priests and teachers and, and lawyers and uh, religious and political leaders, they turned away from that, and in this baptism turned themselves back to God, were rededicated to God, became essentially God's new disciples. And then Jesus shows up, and here we have the record. Now, Peter remembers it very, very straightforwardly. Jesus shows up to John the Baptist. He goes down into the Jordan. He's baptized, and, and then Peter moves on. But it's remembered differently in some of the other witness, eyewitness accounts. And let me re read to you what... We record what is recorded in Matthew. This is Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, just as, as Peter remembers. 
But then there's something else. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to be baptized by me? Jesus replied, Let it be, for we do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented, and Jesus is baptized, and then the story goes on as we see it in Mark. John has a good point. Why was Jesus baptized? You know, as John said, it was a a baptism of repentance. That is, of turning away from one's past, one's sin, one's unwholesomeness, the old life lived without God. Well, Jesus was the anointed one. Jesus was coming from God. Jesus was perfect. He is God. He had a perfect life. What did he need to repent of? What did he need to turn back from? What is Jesus' answer? Well, what he says is that it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? What is the righteousness that he's talking about? Well, here we have to think theologically. It's not uh, explicitly in this text. It's uh, expounded by um, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, where he explains what this righteousness is all about. Well, basically the idea is Jesus was righteous. That means he was right with God. He was perfect. There was no problem nothing to repent of, nothing in him that had to be washed clean. But who is unrighteous? We are. Human beings are. The issue was not Jesus' righteousness. It was the righteousness of those that he came to minister to. When we are baptized... We are baptized in Christ's blood, what he achieved on the cross. And our sins are washed clean because on the cross, he put them to death. He took them on himself. He became sin, the Bible says. And the sin in Christ was put to death so that all those washed in his blood, all those who are baptized, all those who put faith in him, become in God's eyes, holy, become perfect, become righteous, right with God. So Jesus was getting baptized not for himself, but for us. And it points to a reality. Jesus didn't just appear as some angel, some figure of God, some force or spirit of God. Jesus came into our world as a child, became a human being just like us. John says, the word became flesh. God, through Christ, becomes incarnate. That means becomes fleshly, becomes physical. 
has a human nature just like us. God and man, divine nature and human nature, come together in Jesus. He's 100% God. He's 100% a human being. There is a union there. They're coming together there. God and man become one flesh. Theologians refer to this as the mystical union, the spiritual union that occurs in Jesus. And so just as we need to be baptized in his blood, need to receive his spirit, in this extraordinary moment, he joins himself to our unwholesomeness. We get washed clean in baptism. He receives the opposite. He receives the dirt. He receives our broken natures. And he binds himself unconditionally, irrevocably to us in his baptism to become one. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, I am now fully like everybody else in the world. And I bind myself to my people in the world, just as they will bind themselves to me in baptism. And it's not just show or ritual. Paul talks about the union of Christ and his people, Christ and his church, as equivalent to the union of a man and a woman in marriage. There is an extraordinary intimacy here, two becoming one flesh. And that's the intimacy of baptism. In fact, you can think of the sacraments as like a marriage union. The Lord's table, well, let's start with baptism. What is the baptism? Baptism is like the marriage ceremony where you publicly witness and make your vows. The legal joining of yourself, the legal covenant, to Christ and his church. So it's like the public marriage ceremony. Well, then it's the Lord's table. Well, think how intimate this is, the body of Christ. If you use Paul's analogy of this mystical union as marriage, then this is the equivalent of the private intimacy of a man and a woman, a sexual union, an astonishing level of intimacy between God and man. And that's what we are in, in entering into when we get baptized, when we become the body of Christ, when we consume the body of Christ. We are being joined to Christ because he joined himself spiritually to us. It's remarkable. And notice, you get a glimpse of this intimacy just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Notice, heaven is torn open. Now we only know this because Jesus must have told his disciples. He was the one who saw this. 
He must have told his disciples about this moment. That's why it's recorded. And it must be important, otherwise he wouldn't have told them. What is revealed when heaven is torn open? Well, here you see a glimpse of the true nature of God. Here you have the Son. Here you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And here you have the Father, saint to the Son, with you I am well pleased. You have the full revelation of the Trinitarian Christian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice what links them is the Holy Spirit, the one who descends on to the Son. And what did we see last week when John talked about baptism? I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me, Jesus the Messiah, will baptize with the Holy Spirit. We are not only being united in union with Christ, we are being invited and joined with the Trinity, the divine fellowship, the koinonia of God becomes ours. We are given access directly into the heart of God. And when we are baptized in the blood of the Son, we take on his relationship with God. We take on his identity. That's what the mystical union means. To become a son of God. By the way, some people don't like this notion. Certainly when I was a seminary, people didn't like this notion that we all become sons. After all, what about women? The point to remember here is, in that time and place, the practice of every family was primogenitor, which meant that the inheritance of all passed through the first son. The reason was, this was a peasant culture, if you divided up your land among all your descendants, amongst your sons and daughters, Within a couple of generations, as they marry into other families, your land has been split into these tiny little parcels that can't be farmed. And so to keep the land together, the entire inheritance of the entire family passed to the first son to keep the tribe, to keep the resources and wealth concentrated. So what is happening here? Jesus Christ is God's first and only son. And when we are baptized into his blood and we become a son of God like Jesus, we're becoming first sons, receiving the entire inheritance that the other sons and daughters would not receive. Every Christian receives through Christ all the riches of heaven, total access to God, total access all the resources that Jesus had. And that's why it's so extraordinary. It's so extraordinary, by the way, that when I began as a Christian, when I was being trained as a pastor, uh, this happened at Redeemer in the City, they made all the new pastors and all the employees of the church go through uh, uh, an extended curriculum called sonship. And the idea was to unpack this relationship, 
to unpack this union with Christ that produced this new relationship with God. Because when you fully understand it, when you fully believe it, when it becomes the foundation of your relationship with God, it becomes a rock that nothing can shake. It takes a while. There are a lot of implications of this to work through. But it's what allows you to grow spiritually, to have a firm foundation, to be confident despite the circumstances that you live through, despite testing. It's no accident, by the way, that immediately after this, Jesus is tested and goes out into the desert. He is showing that he understands what it means to be a son so that we can see. He's showing that even though he has taken on our humanity, he remains obedient. He remains holy. He remains trustworthy. Jesus Christ knew deep down in his soul that he was a son, and that changed how he behaved. That guided who he was and how he dealt with everything that happened. So let me just share with you a brief story. This is sort of a story that the Sonship curriculum uses to encapsulate the difference between somebody who understands that they're a son and somebody who doesn't. So imagine there's a family, and the family is going out camping. And there's a son, and there's a hired help. There's somebody there who's been hired just to help out with the family camping trip. And at a certain point when the, when the family arrives where they're going to camp, the father says to the son and to the hired help, it's going to be freezing tonight. It's going to be cold and icy. We need a fire. We need to keep warm. If we don't have a fire, we're going to freeze tonight. Both hired help and son hear exactly the same command from the father but it's received completely differently. What is the hired help here? My boss has told me to collect firewood. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm being paid for. If I don't do the job, I'm out. I'll be fired. I won't be part of this operation much longer. I better get on with it. There is the fear of being fired. There is the fear of the boss. There is the compulsion to do what is ordered. The son hears exactly the same command, but hears it completely differently. The son knows he's, son, he's a son. He's part of the family, irrevocably. He's never going to be thrown out. The son knows that if he does nothing, his father is not going to let the, the family freeze. His father will go collect the wood. The son actually doesn't have to do anything. He can just go to his tent and kick back. No fear, no compulsion, no necessity for obedience. However, the son is beloved. And the son, because of that, can reason differently from the hired help. The son can say, I am part of the family. And the father loves the family and he loves me. And the father is asking me to share in taking care of the family. That is a privilege. And out of love, 
for the father and for the family. The son will go and collect firewood. No compulsion. No demand for obedience. Especially no fear. There's nothing to fear if you're a son. You can act purely out of love. That is the power of sonship. If you believe deep down that you're part of the family, it is going to change how you deal with circumstances. Faith is no longer something that you conjure up to cement your relationship with God. Faith is faith in the Father's provision for you and the family that you can relax into. It allows you to understand grace. I don't perform for God. God has performed for me freely. And therefore, I am now free to love and respond and perform out of love and not fear. It changes how you will deal with other people. You won't feel superior to people who are less successful than you, who are poorer than you, whose lives are not working out as well as yours. Because you recognize that you are lost and an orphan, alienated, just like them. But through Christ, you were brought in and made part of the family. Because of him, not because of you. There is nothing in you that is better than anybody else. This gives a humility to the gospel, to Christians. There is no basis for feeling superior to other people. At the same time, it doesn't matter how grand or powerful or rich or successful other people are. You don't have to feel inferior to them. Because God, the creator of all things, Lord of the universe, loves you, has made you family. Who cares what anybody else says? Who cares what the world says? If that is true, you are more significant than anybody else in the universe. And by the way, as you work your way through sonship, as you apply it to your problems, as you remember that you are beloved, it will change every circumstance of your life. All your fears, all your doubts, the sources of depression and feelings of loneliness and alienation, they all, at root, are because we feel like orphans in a universe that doesn't give a damn, that doesn't care about us, that doesn't notice us. But if God calls you a son, daughter, if God, when he looks at you, sees Christ and his record, if God considers you beloved, then you can't be alienated. You'll never be lonely. You'll never feel lost. You'll never feel worthless or overlooked in life. And by the way, this works. List your problems. Try this. Whatever it is that's happening in your life now that is stealing your joy, stealing your delight in being alive, stealing your joy in relationships in work, in whatever it is that you're doing, 
making you feel like your life is a dead end or is stagnant or is not working out the way that you thought it should. Write them down and then apply this logic to them. If it is true that I'm a child of God, why is this nonsense to believe? Or what is the lie that has been told to me? What is the lie about me that I believe that is stealing my joy? When I should remember the truth that I am God's beloved. This is why this is such a powerful idea. You can work through all the problems of your life this way and constantly remind yourself who you are. It's the reason, by the way, the baptism and the Lord's table are considered sacraments. That is, means of grace. You may be laying in bed on a Monday morning, sick as a dog and feeling worthless and unloved, all by yourself. But then remember that Christ died for you. Remember that you were baptized, that you have his name, that he has claimed you, and that you are the beloved. And when you do that, everything will change. If you look at the, the Bible, by the way, if you look at the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, again and again and again, the Psalms of David are him saying to himself, heart, remember who you are. Soul, remember. Remember your identity. Remember what God has done. Remember what you became when you put your faith in him. Most of our problems are because we've forgotten. And by the way, one of the great values of a church and a community of Christians is you surround yourself with people who constantly remind you of the truth, of what God has done, and if you share your problems with them, will remind you of prayers answered, and will remind you of your new identity. It is a powerful way of being transformed, and it is the essence of the gospel. That's why this is such a revelation. Let me end with a final story. Back in the 80s, um, I was a bit of a wanderer, and I ended up in Bolivia, as you do. And in Bolivia in 1984, it was the height of the cocaine epidemic. Uh, those of you older will remember the 80s and cocaine. When I left California, cocaine was selling about $150 an ounce. Down in Bolivia, it was $1.50 an ounce. And a lot of Americans went down there because of that. Very cheap to live in Bolivia. But there was a particularly tragic group of Americans down there. They had gone down there. They had become addicts. And they had sold their passports to buy drugs because American passports were very valuable down there. And they were just lumps of misery. You would see them on the streets. The American embassy didn't care about them. They didn't have a passport, just did not want to know. The locals had utter contempt for them. Because, you know, life in Bolivia is hard, and these rich Americans had come down and thrown it all away. They were just desperate and trapped. Because they didn't have a passport, they couldn't leave. They couldn't get on a plane to fly home. They couldn't cross the border. 
they would just start. Homeless, oftentimes in tattered clothes. Bolivia is cold. La Paz is high, and it's really cold up there. And so they were just the most wretched group of people you can imagine. Now, what do you suppose those people would think? Those lost souls, trapped, no way out, completely hopeless. If some rich person showed up and took them out of the streets and clothed them and gave them something to eat, gave them shelter, and miracle of miracles gave them a passport with a new name but their picture, a way out. And not only that, allowed them to go to a new home, back to America, back to a new house, and all the riches of that person, all the relationships that person had, all the future that that person had. That would be astonishing, almost unimaginable. And yet, the gospel says Jesus did exactly that on the cross for each of us. In fact, he did more. He not only gave away his identity and his relationship with God, he took the place of those wretched creatures in the street. Christ became one of us. And then he went a step further. He took on all the ugliness that we have. And then he went a step further. He put it to death in himself at his own cost. And then he went a step further. He gave everyone who believes in him and put their faith in him everything that he had to give away. A new name, Christian. A new relationship with God. He taught us, and we prayed it today, how to pray to God as our Father. A new place in heaven. A new relationship with God and with each other. The koinonia, the divine life of God. And a new beginning. Washed clean. Ready for a new life. Our entire future ahead of us. No fear. That's what baptism is all about. When you and I are baptized, that's what we are claiming. When you and I go to this table, that's what we are receiving and celebrating. And if you truly believe it, if you work it into every layer and level of your life, every problem of your life, the result is a life that is no longer based on fear, on performance, on other people's opinion, but is based on love, which allows you to be generous, which allows you to live in any circumstance, face any problem, any challenge. That is the Christian life. Our baptism, our sonship, applied to our problems, to our heart, mind, and soul, so that we can live in a Christ-like way as a child of God. That is all Christianity is. The challenge is to believe it, to let it burrow into your psyche, into the, the core of who you are. That's what spiritual maturity looks like, by the way. As a church, that's what we should be about with each other. Helping each other to remember 
encouraging each other to trust, reminding each other of God's faithfulness, living out a witness of God's love in the middle of the problems of our lives. And when we do that, we're going to grow up. We're going to become more like Christ. Because that's our future. That's why he went to the cross. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, it is hard to imagine. In fact, we can't possibly imagine what you went through for us. But Lord, um, you give us a picture through the Lord's table of complete sacrifice, of complete giving and generosity. Help us to believe, Lord. Help us to receive all that you give to us. Help us to make it the foundation of who we are. Help us to become like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.